Morning, Freedom Center. I'm going to say something you're rarely ever going to hear me say. I'm cold. Is it cold in here? Is it? If, if you're cold, here, here's what you do, right? Just put, if you're cold, raise your hand. I'm cold, okay. Now put it on the person next to you. Just scoot over. Unless that's somebody else's spouse. Don't, don't, don't do that. Yeah. Um, actually, it'd be a good time to do that because today we're talking about forgiveness again and uh, the atmosphere of mercy. How many of you guys know the backbone of the kingdom of heaven is mercy? It, it's not the heart. The heart would be love. It's not the eyes. The eyes would be the prophetic gift. It's not the hands. That would be the touching, the, the miraculous. But the, there's, this, there's this thought that we can never go any farther than the willing to let go of the things that people have done to us and we've done to them and we've done to God and the things that God even maybe allowed in our lives. How many of you guys know you cannot get from here to where God wants you to be without a lot of instances of just mercy? I just choose to let it go. I, I choose to forgive. We talked about last week, used the language of divorce because the verb in the Greek to forgive is the exact same verb as to divorce. It means to, to end the agreement, the covenant, the intimacy that I have with this offense, with this pain, with this wound. I will not carry this, this spouse, this weight with me any longer. I choose to live in mercy. And so today, we're going to talk more about that. Um, next week, we're going to talk about forgiving others. I thought we might come back to it this week. But I really think we need to get a good, solid foundation beneath our feet about knowing that we are forgiven. How many of you guys know you cannot give what you do not have? It's a cliche, but it's so true. If you haven't really experienced the miraculous, wonderful, abundant, uh, almost without conditions, mercy of God, then it's very difficult to give away that when your experience is, well, I, I forgive, but I hold it a distance. I, I, I don't forgive, but I, I don't want them to die in the fires of hell anymore. So I'm really moving along the path well, you know. So um, justice, believe it or not, can only be accomplished through mercy. And so today we're going to talk about the mercy of God, forgiving ourselves uh, two weeks from today, forgiving uh, each other next week. So we're going to spend a month in forgiveness. I know the name of the series is I Belong to Jesus. You say, why don't we call it mercy or forgiveness? It's like, because I, I don't forgive because I'm commanded to. I forgive because I will never be more like my king than when I extend mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it, someone who maybe didn't even ask for forgiveness, someone who maybe isn't aware that they hurt me, maybe someone who's fully aware that they hurt me, did it on purpose and are giggling about it right now. You know what I mean? I will never be more like Jesus than when I am crucified and I extend mercy to those who did it to me. How do you guys want to grow up to be like Jesus? I just, you just don't want to be crucified. But that's, that's how you get there. Resurrection comes after crucifixion. So let's start with a very important question. You might have seen this question in our, in our past teachings. I probably haven't asked it in two years, but I think it's foundational to an understanding we have today. Just being brutally honest. Everybody here, brutally honest. Nobody hiding anything that's between you and God. No one will know this, the answer to this question like you will. But on a scale of 1 to 10, just being honest. Nothing to hide behind. No reason to hide at all. You're safe here. Being brutally honest, rate your relationship on a scale of 1 to 10 with God right now. You got it? You got your number? How many got your number? How many guys already know the answer to the question because you've heard me teach on it before? Just one? Well, that's, that's really rewarding for me. Thanks, Mary, for being the one person. No, really the number you arrived at is not, is not really germane to our conversation. It's, it's how you arrived at that number. When you say, well, 
what, what I'm going to do is I have to figure out, okay, what is the standard? Are we doing this so far? What is the standard of, of perfection? My, my relationship with Jesus is at a 10. Like it's, I can hear angels singing, and Moses and I had breakfast yesterday, and I, I pray in tongues as I'm choosing my socks. Like I am just, every gift is operating in my life, 10. And then you kind of work your way back. But yeah, but I, I also got mad at that guy on US 23 yesterday. How many of you know US 23 in the original Greek is the road of Satan? That's what it means. I also tried to return that stuff, and they said, oh, the return is too late, and I got mad about that. And then I had this other situation, and I saw that commercial, and I should have looked away, but I didn't. And I said that thing, thought that thing, did that thing. Okay, so if that's a 10, let me deduct from it, though. Okay, I'm a 7. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? What, the number you arrived at, how did you arrive at it? Most of the time, people arrive at it not by saying what God has done, but by saying what you have done. And, and that's, that's what we got to get to today. What you have done... Once God applies his full mercy to it, no longer exists in the economy of God. It's as if you had never sinned. And that's hard to understand because we want courts and rulings and verdicts and judgments and prisons and Hatfields and McCoys and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And God just doesn't work that way. The backbone of the kingdom of God is mercy. So um, what activates God's wonderful grace in our lives? Paul in Romans does this beautiful treatise on everything we're talking about today. In chapters 1, 2, and most of chapter 3, he describes the problem. The problem is sin. The good news is don't worry about sin. Don't have to think about sin. You're born with it. You'll die with it unless something interacts with that sin. Like, it's like, how do I do this? Am I this? Let me test this. Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? Just, would you just trust me on this? You're a bad person. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear from a pastor on Sunday morning? And I'm quoting Paul. Paul's saying, listen, it doesn't matter what you think, what you've done, where you've been. One sin separates you from the perfection and the holiness of God. We've all sinned and fall short of his glory. So he stated the problem clearly, and now he's going to begin to resolve that problem as we are today. Look at this. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. This is his treatise. This is like the statement he's going to spend the rest seven verses, uh, several verses proving. He says this. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justified, just for a second, what does the word justified mean? The simplest way to remember what justified means is once you are justified by God through faith, it's just if I'd never sinned. Standing before God as if the Garden of Eden never took place, the whole fig leaf and it's her fault, it's the snake's fault, as if all the murders and all the lies and all the lust and all the greed and all the pride had never happened. When I am forgiven by God, it is as if I have no past sins. How do we get there? Paul says it right here. We maintain, I'm, I'm going to argue this to the day I die, and he did literally to the day he died. I maintain this, a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What he's going to do is this. He's going to blow up what has been a universal theory for thousands of years. It, it is universal because we have no other understanding in our world but this understanding. And here's what it is. Good people go to, and bad people go to Ohio State. Good to have you back, Dan. I'm just saying. <laughs> Good people go to heaven, and bad people go to hell. Can I, can I just question that for a second? Do good people go to heaven? A better question is, is there such a thing as a good person? Do bad people go to hell? Maybe a better question is, is there anything for a bad person that God has provided for all mankind to no longer receive the punishment and do their deeds? Mercy. Mercy. Hear me. Ask the average American, are you going to heaven or hell? What will they say? Anybody know? Heaven. You say, why are you going to heaven? They say, because I'm a what? A good person, right? Good compared to who? 
How many of you guys had this nightmare scenario where you're lining up on Judgment Day? There's Peter, you know, there's the gates. People are getting in. People are not getting in. And you're in line behind Mother Teresa. Anybody else had that nightmare? Like, where is Hitler? Let me, let me get behind the Hitlers. I want to, because next to him, I look pretty good. Next to her, I, I don't look good at all. Good compared to who? And this was, we're the only person who is truly good. Jesus says this, there's only one who is good, and it's God himself. Compare yourself to what is good. Are we still good? No. So I ask the average person, you going to heaven or hell? Let's say heaven because you're a good person. And you just got to hear this. Every world religion that exists except Christianity says you are your savior. You obey these laws. You do these mantras. You do these meditations. You do these disciplines. You don't do these things. You do these things. You walk on your knees as a, you know, for, across the country to earn the right. Every world religion believes themselves to be saviors, except for the one who has a savior named the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the good part of the good news, right? So Paul's opening the eyes of those who will listen then and now of God's true plan to rescue his lost children. And he's going to do it through a commonly respected, revered person, both in the Gentile world and the Jewish world, and that's Father Abraham, who had many sons. Anybody been around long enough to know why I'm doing this? And now the song is stuck in your head for the rest of your life, right? Right arm, left arm, I need medicine, Father Abraham, Right? So what does Scripture say? Now, there's going to be some really dense language. Can I just teach a little bit this morning? Is that okay? you got to know what you believe so you can believe it. So let's, let's talk about this. What does Scripture say? He's going to go right back to Scripture and, and the key figure of the Old Testament, which is Abraham, Abraham and Moses. He said, Abraham what? What do you do? Come on. Abraham believed God, and it was what? As what? Okay, just for those who are listening on the radio that can't see this, listen. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's, let's just do this in the reverse. Is that okay? So righteousness is a credit, is a gift given once we what? Do you see that? Righteousness is a gift given, something accredited to us. I, I didn't work, and you paid me. I didn't work, and you gave it to me anyway. That credit comes to me as if I had earned it, though I could not ever have earned it. It comes to me, and in such a way, we don't earn this right standing with God by being good. We receive the gift of right standing with God because we're trusting that he is good enough for both of us. And let me just say this. This is where religion gets really tricky. Oh, boy, I said this the right way. All Scripture has an occasion and has an audience. And we can take a scripture that had a certain occasion and a certain audience and apply it broadly to people who are not a part of that occasion and are not a part of that audience. Does that make sense? If, if a teacher of scripture finds the most negative, difficult to understand, constrictive, specific verses and make Christianity be, to be nothing more than 10 commandments plus another 10 plus 12 over here and 13 over here that come and go and change with the preference of the teacher. Can you see where people would believe that God isn't merciful? He's actually extraordinarily judgmental. And I'll tell you this. Once people believe God is judgmental, they'll be judgmental in his name. The black eye of the body of Christ was given to us by ourselves because we believe that mercy only comes through morality. And that's not true. Morality is actually, the root of morality is faith. It's, it's, it's the righteousness that comes by faith. It's being forgiven. So we should become what? Forgiving. 
And, and in this thought, I'm not saying we shouldn't call out sin. I'm just saying this. If all we are known by in the world around us is what we don't do, we have failed to do what we were called to do. So if we believe through religious teachings that all of Scripture is restrictive and constrictive and condemning and, you know, gouging out eyes and not forgiving and planks in everybody's eyes and everybody's wrong but us. And all we ever get known for saying are the things that we say when we find the wrong audience to specific Scripture that fits the judgment. Because we have convinced ourselves that God is not merciful but judgeful and vengeful, then we become judgeful and vengeful in his name and we call it righteousness. It's nothing new. The Pharisees were that. It's nothing new. I won't point out anybody today because it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be unifying in the body of Christ. But understand this. Turn on the radio, turn on the TV, read a book, and you'll find people that are mad at everybody but themselves. Why? It isn't because they're actually mad at people. It's because they think God is mad at people. And in his name, I too am angry. Is God an angry God? God can get angry. But is God an angry God? Is God a loving God? So if he's a loving God, then can you understand, well, they, all men will know that you're my disciples. How? If you judge everything everybody does. <laughs> or all men will know you're my disciples if, what, you, you love each other, right? So we don't earn right standing. We receive it. And that gift creates a generosity, trusting that he is good. So he continues. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says this. Now, to the one who works, you know, wages aren't credited as, as a gift, but as an obligation. I work for eight hours. You pay me $10 an hour. You owe me how much money? Eight times 10 is? So here, here's $80. You're like, oh, thank you. What a wonderful gift. It's not a gift. If you don't pay me that, you're a thief. If you do pay me that, well, I worked and I traded my time for your money and everybody's happy. Now, to the one who works, wages aren't, aren't, they're not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, this is a beautiful verse. Please hear this. To the one who does not work, and I'm going to add something to this. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts the work that God has done and the way he justifies the ungodly, their faith, their trust, their belief is credited as a gift and you are now righteous. In the eyes of God, innocent. In the eyes of God, righteous. It's, a, it's amazing grace. Somebody should write a song about it. It's an amazing grace, right? Now, just in case Paul's readers are like, well, yes. But there's a context to that. And, and maybe it was just for Abraham. Or maybe his faith and the fruit of his faith is different than the amount of faith that I have and the fruit of the amount of faith that I have. So I don't know that this really applies to anybody besides Abraham. It goes, well, let's talk about that. Uh, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for who? For us. There's, there's about 1,800 years between Abraham and Paul, and there's about, what, 20-some centuries between Paul and us. But isn't it funny that universally through Scripture, this is the truth of Scripture? It was true before even the covenant of circumcision. It was true before the law. It was true before there were 12 tribes of a nation called Israel. It was true before anybody knew what a Jew was. Those who trust God, God says, well, if you're going to trust me, then trust me to be everything that you need me to be in a relationship. Trust me to be merciful. Trust me to be abundant. Trust me to be kind. Trust me to be just. Trust me to be right. So when they believe God, all that... I'm going to say this right away. How many of you guys know that... Um, there are atmospheres that attract things. Does this make sense? If I'm afraid, I can find anything else to, to kind of make that fear real. Does that make sense? 
My, my, my attitude of my default setting of being afraid actually attracts scary things to my soul. If I'm angry, I will always find things to make me more angry. And if I can't, that's why somebody created social media and the news. So if you're at peace and you don't like it, there are ways to get rid of peace very quickly in our world today, right? Um, I, I, if I'm angry, I can always find more things, more evidence of injustice if I'm mad about injustice, more evidence of scandal, more evidence of conspiracy, more evidence of whatever it is that justifies the narrative so I can continue to be angry. If I create the atmosphere of anger, it will attract things that make me angry. True? Is it conversely true that if I create the atmosphere of mercy, mercy will find a way to find me? Is it conversely true that if I'm generous, somehow that generosity creates an environment where through the generosity I decrease, but somehow that decrease becomes increase? Is that true? That if I operate in faith, God will always send me things to believe. And if I operate in fear, the devil will always send me things to be afraid of. So the atmosphere of this, he's saying this, those who trust God create an atmosphere where God is attracted to them with his righteousness. The words that was credited to him were not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who do what? Come on. Who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, he was delivered over to death for our sins. His death paid the price of, of the, the consequence of our actions, which should have been our death. Instead of our death, it's his death. But he didn't stop there. And was raised to life, raised to life for our justification. So not only are our sins forgiven, it's just if I'd never sinned. This is the theme of the entire Bible, guys. And we see it in Genesis. We see it in Revelation. We see it in every book in between. Just a few verses here to kind of make sure you understand what I'm saying. Jesus taught this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. And if you don't know what that story is, that's a weird statement. But trust me, it's a good one. Look it up. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? That everyone who... Come on, say it. Everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Look at this next one. You might have heard it. It's a good one on a lot of bumper stickers. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and his only son, that whoever, come on, in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What is the door to eternal life? It's not our works. It's, it's not our righteousness. It's not what we do and don't do. It's not who we do it with and who we don't do it with. By the way, I'm not saying that everything is okay. There are clearly prohibitions in Scripture, but not because God is a prude, but because God is prudent. He knows what's best for his kids, just like in many ways you know what's best for your kids. So when your 14-year-old daughter brings home her 21-year-old boyfriend named Snake, you want to lift up the snake in the wilderness too, don't you? And make him believe. What I'm saying is this. You, you want what's best for your kids, do you not? Your heavenly father wants what's best for his kids, and not everything is best. But understand this. Even when we transgress, even when we cross the line, we trespass into what God clearly told us not to. There's a merciful God on both sides of that line, and what we have done is never going to be more powerful than what he has done for us. And trusting that, believing that, walking in that, I can't tell you the number of people I run into, their biggest problem is they're forgiven, and yet they behave like they were never forgiven. They're right with God. But in their mind, there's still this condemnation. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, same book we've been studying, goes that, therefore now, there is no what? Anybody know? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those, those acts that should have brought judgment that condemned you, that doesn't fit anymore. The final punishment of your sins has been paid for in full by Jesus on the cross. This is why on the cross he says the phrase ta we translate it, it is 
finished. But it doesn't, it doesn't just mean, I mean, those are the proper words, but culturally there's something else. It would be more akin to paid in full. And if the devil ever comes back and says, oh, no, 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 that's, that's you know, that's the, most people's sins are paid for, but Dave Cromer, I don't know about that guy, man. I, have you paid enough to redeem even Dave Cromer? Well, how many guys know what higher price could be paid? Not just life for a life, not a sinner for a sinner, not me jumping on a grenade or you breaking through the ice to save me, but the perfect Lamb of God, the Son of God, sinless in every way, defeating everything that's defeated us. Now he jumps on a grenade? Now he jumps on a cross? Who could ever come to God and say, you didn't pay enough for mankind when he gave himself for us? So hear me. Look at this next one, John chapter 6. What must we do? They're saying, Jesus, give us a sign. We want to be right with God. What do we do? And What must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered. Here it is. You ready? The work of God is this. Don't smoke. Don't chew. Don't listen to rock and roll. Don't root for inferior football teams and have inferior mustaches. I'm just saying, Dan... Could you stand up and show away that beautiful mustache? Let me see your face. Let me just, no. Look at, look at that bad boy. Look at that. All right. Just so you know, deacon of the church, one of the best friends I've ever had in my life, but he is starting a ministry for white trash. And that, that is the advertisement. No, no, you're forgiven. Parts of your face still look unredeemed, but you're forgiven, right? <laughs> what must we do? What must we do? I, I want to do the right thing. I want, to, I want to be forgiven. I want to, what do I do? And God goes, Jesus says this, like, this is what you got to do. You ready? Trust me. Just trust me. No, I want to trust me. Trust me. There's a joke on the staff that it's funny to them <laughs> concerning me, and that is that I am not a control freak. I'm just a freak that needs a lot of control. We're not playing with the language. Forgiven means what? Faith in this sentence means what? It means faith. Trust means what? It means trust. It means I believe not only are you better than I am, I believe you're greater than I am. And that what you paid for me is more than adequate. Paul sums it all up with these, these really beautiful words. He says, therefore, since we have been justified, justified never sinned through this faith, through this trust, through this belief, we have what? Everybody say it with me. We have peace. Take a good deep breath. Just take it in and then say the word peace. Peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I did a study on that word peace this last week because I, I think it's an important word for us to understand. How do I know if my heart and his heart are in alignment? How do I know if, not just that he's forgiven me, but I, I, I've forgiven me. Not just that he's dealt with my sins, but I've, I've acknowledged and allowed him to deal with my sins. How do I know and this is, this is the acid test. If there's peace between you and God, something has happened. And if there isn't peace between you and God, maybe God hasn't done what he wants to do, or maybe you've not acknowledged or allowed him to do what he's promised to do. Going to church is a wonderful thing. Reading the Bible, studying scriptures, praying, wonderful stuff. Understand this. There's only one thing that will bring you peace, and that is having every last sin dealt with by the only one who knows how. Trusting him to be better than you are at this. And just literally putting your life, your eternal life in his hands and saying, into your hands, I commit my spirit, my soul, 
my body. The word peace means this. It's the Greek word arene, arene. Um, and it's the tranquil state. Piano guy, join me if you would, please. The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. The tranquil state. <sighs> the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so not fearing, uh, so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot. How do I know if I'm right with God? There should be a, an acknowledging, ah, there should be a, a celebratory. Whew. There should be a, I'm trying to compare it to something. I, I'm sorry, I'm full of football analogies. I'm just full of football right now. Forgive me. I, I won't be in a couple of weeks, but certainly at least through tomorrow evening, I will be thinking a lot about football. There's real estate. But did you see the, what was it, like a punt? And the Michigan guy's like on the five-yard line. And, he, and he, he muffed it. He, he was going into the end zone. Remember that? Did you see that the day? I started screaming, like, it's going to be that game again. And it's going to go into the end zone. They're going to fall on it. Who's going to go into the end zone? Either way, the game's over with. He dropped the ball, but then he picked it up and took a tremendous blow for it, which, frankly, as a fan, he deserved. <laughs> Let it go in the end zone. Just fair catch it, and then don't fair catch it, you know? Um, there, was, there was a simultaneously a, <gasps> and a, <gasps> You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else a football fan? It's like, we've got what? Oh, that's a negative? That's, that's a bill? Oh, that's a check. That, that's your boyfriend? Oh, oh no, that's her, her friend's boyfriend. Thank God. <laughs> there should be, there should be this, this interaction between your heart and God's heart where it's almost like there's an eye to eye. Like, are we good? And guy goes, you know we're good. You know we're good. You should be like, ah, ah peace. Let's go back to our original question. On a scale of 1 to 10, being brutally honest, rate your relationship with Christ right now. Um, There's only one of two answers. Did you know that? Either you're focusing on what you have done and not done. You're doing the math. You carry the 3 minus the 4, do this and add it, go count a 7. Or you look only at what He has done for you and you're a 10. Or you've decided to be a zero. Both are your right, and both are your responsibility. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because in my efforts to be good, I, I usually, the better I get, I mean, guys, the better you get, the more you realize how wrong you've been. You know? The, the better my behavior gets, the more I realize how bad my behavior's been. The, the better my attitude, my mind, my words get, the more... The, the, you know, the worse I treat my friends, you know, the more... What I'm saying is this, like, please hear my heart. There, there is an exhaustion to self-righteousness. And there's a relief that comes with a gifted righteousness. It's vital that we ask the right questions, right? So, have I done enough? That's not the right question. The question is, has God, through the life of His Son, the death of His Son, the resurrection of His Son done enough. Have I done enough? I, I will never know if I've done enough, but there's a part of me that will always know that I haven't. Right? Maybe you're there right now. Has God done enough? Well, it's very easy for me to conclude that He has. And He's done so much more than I'll ever be able to do. Why wouldn't I substitute my works for His? Why wouldn't I substitute my, my righteousness for His? My good deeds, Paul says, are like dirty rags, filthy rags. Um, not to be gross, but 
he was trying to think of the most unclean thing he could think of. And filthy rags are actually what they called menstrual cloths. During a woman's monthly flow, there would be a cloth that absorbed the blood, and it was unclean, could not be touched, could not be. It's just a biological nightmare. He said, my righteousness, he's a Pharisee, of Pharisees. My righteousness, all that I did, he said, what's the most unclean thing I can think of? And that's what he came up with. That's his righteousness, far beyond our righteous acts will ever be. But when we receive the righteousness of Christ, we are the righteousness of Christ. (laughs) I love this. Second question, do I trust myself? I got this, God. You know, you're going to heaven or hell. You know, Jesus, hold my beer. I got this. You don't. Because if you live with any, any sense of accounting for your deeds, you would know there's probably not a day that goes by that you don't transgress something horribly important to the heart of God. And you say, no, I've been months since I had that. Then your heart is so hard and your conscience is so, like, you hear me? Do I trust myself or can I trust God? And the last question is, do I belong to me? If I do, then I'm in church. Or do I belong to Jesus? If so, then I've been bought with a great price. But I've been bought. I am owned. I am occupied. So at this point, uh, just hear me. Forgiveness of sins It's not achieved by what you do. It's given by whom you trust. Lyndon, we'll we'll see you. Uh, Pastor Jason, if you'll land the plane, that'd be great out there. Fan, let's do the same here if we can. Um, Do you need any sin forgiven? Do you need in this moment, and I'm talking to you personally, not theologically or theoretically, do you have a sin that now stands between your heart and, and God's heart? Or there's or a, a litany of them, a list of them, years, decades of them. Here's the good news. What Jesus did was he, he died once, the Bible says, for all. Not, not just once for all people, but once for all sins. This this beautiful transaction of I trust you to save me, and him saying then that's the only way I can. That beautiful atmosphere where you say, I trust you. And he goes, then I trust you. I love you. I, I love you. I love you. I love you. This, this beautiful atmosphere where we open the door. How many of us know if I open the door to my home and I just leave it open and it's cold outside and it's warm inside, it will attract certain things. I will never fear waking up the next day and discovering my family room is full of fish because it's the wrong atmosphere for fish. But if, but if I leave it open, how many of us know it will not be long before the neighbor's dog Chipmunks, skunks, squirrels, raccoons. Have you ever seen what happens to a shed when it's abandoned for a year or two? Everybody moves in. Same thing's true with your heart. Hear me. When you open the door to Jesus, you create an atmosphere for Jesus. And Jesus attracts things that are not skunks and not chipmunks and not squirrels and not raccoons. That The atmosphere of your heart, that open door creates an invitation. The enemy never works without permission. Did you know that? We have to make room for him. And God never acts without permission. We have to make room for Him. So you have a door. You have, you have a house. Who is the door open to right now? Whatever the answer to that question is, you're attracting it as we speak. You ever seen a hurt person get more and more and more and more hurt? Why? Because the door is open and atmosphere is created. Unforgiveness creates more unforgiveness. Bitterness creates more reasons to be bitter and more bitter people around you. But when God's mercy comes in, you should expect peace with God and you'll almost die trying to keep peace with man. 
because you receive it. You know what it is. You walk in it. So right now in your heart, is there, are there areas of your heart that just don't belong to Jesus yet? Then I would suggest to you, and I, as a pastor saying suggest means I can't command you, but I wish I could. But it has to be your choice. What is your decision? What will you do with that that stands between you and the Lord? Will you hold it for the rest of your life? Will you find some other religious practices to somehow work off the debt that you somehow owe God? Or will you receive the grace? I've shown you 15 verses today that say you cannot do anything other than trust. And there is nothing else that is needed other than trust. Would you close your eyes all over this room? Father, I pray for those of us that are here today that it's time. It's not time to turn to practices and... Uh, you know, repetitious things. It's, it's time for us to come to the one who knows what we've done and has already compensated, has already done what needs to be done, has already paid in full the price of every sin we'll ever commit. So God, I, we, we just need this today. I pray that those who have heard this message and are not standing in the right place with you today, whatever the date is today, that this would be the day they're born physically on one day. They're born as if it were all over again on another date. Let this date be the date they point back to and say that's the day. I believe there's people in this room that need this moment that's just literally just a few seconds away. There's another group of people here you need this moment as well. You were born again a long time ago. You've been following Christ for a long time, but something's grown, something's evolved, something's happened, and you recognize it as sin. What do you do with that? Well, here's what you do. You do the same thing you did the first time. You come back to a merciful God asking for mercy. And you trust that no matter what you've done, what he's done for you is greater. Or you're in charge of your own righteousness or maybe just your own hypocrisy. We're not to be hypocrites. We're to be imitators. Imitators of God. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'm going to count to three. If you need either one of those today, I want, to, I want to just combine the noun of my faith inside of me with the verb of my hand being raised. Today, before God, I raise my hand to ask for mercy. For forgiveness, I know has been waiting for me to respond. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to run towards my merciful Savior today. When I come to three, I want you to raise your hand if that's you. You ready? All over this room. Believers, would you pray with me right now? Those are in, this doesn't apply to you, but, but that doesn't mean you're not involved in an important way right now. Come on, would you just pray, Father, give them the courage to raise their hand today in a room full of people. Give them courage today to raise their hand before you. May this singular act of faith be the defining moment of the rest of their eternity. You ready? Here we go. One, raise your hand if this is you. Two, all over this room. Three, today. Come on. The hands are going up. The hands are going up. Yay, God. Yay, God. Forgive us. Come on, just tell him. Do you know he's going to forgive you before you ask? Of course you do. Come on, right now, say, God, forgive me. Come on, say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. This is, this is not a tearing your clothes and ashes on your head moment. This is a celebration of the mercy of God. God, forgive me, because I know you will. God, forgive me, because you promised you would. God, forgive me, because what you did is greater than what I've done. God, forgive me, because what you believe about me is more important than what I believe about me. God, may your kingdom come into my life in a fresh way, and may your will be done on earth through every breath I take. In Jesus' name, every offense is gone. Come on. Every sin is gone. Every lesser than is gone. How do I know this? Because I've done this a million times and found the faithfulness of God more powerful than my lack of faith. 
And if you believe that right now, would you just say amen? How many of you guys have experienced the mercy of God on more than one occasion? Would you say amen? We confess our sins. What, what's his reaction to that? He's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, before we can forgive anybody else, we must first experience mercy at this level. Now forgive us. Now forgive us. Now forgive us. <laughs> Jesus' name, come on. Amen. Amen. As you stand to your feet all over this room, listen, as you're doing that, there are people that are coming forward today. They are, uh, we call them altar workers. They're people that pray with anybody who has a prayer request, a need. Maybe you want to talk a little bit more about the service today. Like I, before I die, I didn't understand this one point. Um, we're not a church necessarily of theologians, but we're, we're people who've been someplace and we can guide you there. So if you'd like to talk to somebody about this, man, would you come? And we just would love to pray with you this morning. Second thing, and, and almost last thing, as you exit the doors today, if you were to turn left and then turn another left on the other side of the, the, the nursery area, the youth room is there. That's where we're having our first steps class. Dina talked about it this morning. Um, part of this new year, I, I boy, there's so many things I want to tell you that I can't quite tell you yet. Next two or three weeks, all will be known. Really great, really great things. But really, things are going to require a lot more of us to stop watching what God does and start participating in what God is doing. The first step to going from a, an observer to a participant is the First Steps class, aptly named First Steps class. So I'm, I'm not begging you, I'm not pleading with you, but I am telling you with a shaking finger. Evidently, it's that serious. Put it away. It's not loaded, you know. Um, you were created to do more than receive things at church. You were created to be a participant, a giver. Um, man, row the boat. Takes away a lot of the temptation to rock it. Row the boat. Get involved in somebody's life. Be to someone else what someone was to you, and that's why you're still here. It's your turn now. You have something to give away. Let's go give it. So out the doors to the left. Go grab your kids. And um, Father, bless your people. Merciful hearts because of the great mercy they've known through you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. If you need prayer, come on this way. First steps out and around. Go grab your babies, and we'll see you next year. That was the best sermon I preached all year. <laughs>